Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. But don't take our word for it. Listen to this voicemail from a subscriber. I'm calling from West Hollywood. Actually, I'm calling from Washington, D.C. on my way back to West Hollywood. So I have been digging into your Patreon library because I just joined the other day. You've been teasing me with your Patreon, and I am enjoying those episodes very much. And just want to shill for you, other listeners, join the Patreon. There are some amazing episodes on there. So uh, come join me in Patreon world. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Tasha Robinson. And Genevieve Kosky. Keith Phipps is out clutching his blue blanket somewhere, but he'll be back for a future pairing. This week, I'm afraid to confess I'm in a terrible spot. As you know, it hasn't been the easiest year for people in the culture writing business, and I need to raise money fast to stay solvent. Well, I had an idea. Those of us in journalism know that if you successfully pitch an article to a publication, and for whatever reason they decide not to publish it, you get a kill fee, right? But lately, I've been finding that it takes a lot of time and effort to deliver a good piece. And sometimes it's really inefficient to spend two hours watching the original Love Bug just for an 80-word blurb on a list of 50 recommended titles on Disney+. Plus. But if I can get the same amount of money for doing a much shoddier job, then I stand to make a lot in kill fees. So here's what I need us to do. Help me land a pitch for the worst culture feature ever written. Uh, uh, hold on a minute, Scott. This plan seems really short-sighted. Even if you pull it off and one of your longtime editors accepts the pitch, you can only get away with writing the worst feature ever once. They'll never want to work with you again. And your reputation's going to take a huge hit. But what if you don't get a kill fee and the piece runs anyway? Bad takes have no place on the internet. The public won't stand for it. No writer who has ever published a bad take after a bad take has ever worked again. You cannot think of a single example to prove me wrong on that one. But I have so many bad feature ideas. A ranked list of the best Gerard Butler movies, an oral history of the Rob Reiner comedy North to celebrate its 25th anniversary, an unreadable 10,000-word treatise on Alfred Hitchcock's The Paradigm Case, a piece about why Miss Piggy is a domestic abuser. Actually, that last one was published by the New Republic. Damn it! Well, before I get accused of authoring the worst podcast script ever written, Genevieve, could you talk about this week's pairing? Sure. The new Taiko Watiti comedy Jojo Rabbit was a favorite in the fall festivals, walking away with the People's Choice Award at the Toronto Film Festival, which has been the bellwether for a lot of future Oscar winners. Yet it hasn't gone without controversy, specifically for its depiction of Adolf Hitler as a lonely German boy's imaginary friend. But our willingness to accept Hitler as a comic figure goes back a long way, and Mel Brooks's 1967 debut feature The Producers suggests why. In a scam that involves staging a surefire flop, a producer and an accountant bank on audiences getting turned off by Springtime for Hitler, a musical that casts the Fuhrer in a heroic light, but instead, they find him hilarious. So this week on The Next Picture Show, we'll look at the producers and the unexpected folly of staging the most tasteless play imaginable. Then next week, we'll bring in Jojo Rabbit, a so-called anti-hate satire that tackles the additional challenge of placing Hitler in the context of World War II itself. In the meantime... I have some pitches to send out. 
one. We find the worst plane in the world, a surefire plop. Spring time for Hitler. Step two. I raise a million bucks. There are a lot of little old ladies in the world. I love you. What? I love you. What? I love you! Step three. You go back to work on the books. Only list of backers, one for the government, one for us. Hey, I Open on Broadway. Step five, we close on Broadway. Step six, we take our million bucks and we fly to Rio de Janeiro. Since Charlie Chaplin made The Great Dictator in 1940, cinema has naturally wanted to cast Adolf Hitler as a buffoon. Chaplin's film warned of the rise of fascism and anti-Semitism under Hitler and Mussolini, but his Hitler-esque character, Adenoid Hinkle, exploits all the dictator's mockable qualities his short stature, his funny little mustache, his petty megalomania, and delusions of grandeur. Though The Great Dictator would go on to become Chaplin's biggest hit, he would later express some regret in his autobiography over having made it, writing that he hadn't known the true horror of German concentration camps at the time. And now, 80 years later, we're still facing the same dilemma. How do you present Hitler on screen? Or more specifically, how can you build a comedy around a man regarded as the most evil figure in a 20th century that had plenty of other candidates? Is it possible in any context to compartmentalize the deaths of millions and get a cathartic laugh from the buffoon whose madness should never have been taken seriously? Mel Brooks's debut feature, The Producers, finds an exceedingly clever way to broach the question. Rather than make a comedy about Hitler... Brooks has made a comedy about the staging of an offensive play about Hitler, which then ironically suggested that, in the right context, people could laugh at him. But even from the satirical distance Brooks allowed himself, the producers was nonetheless a tough sell. For a first-time filmmaker to get any movie made is hard enough, but he had to overcome a lot of skepticism just to score the modest million-dollar budget he needed. Then the distributor, Embassy Pictures, refused to release it because they found it in quote-unquote bad taste, and its premiere was a disaster. It didn't get much support from prominent critics either. Pauline Kael, Stanley Coffin, and John Simon all hated it, and Renata Adler in the New York Times called it quote-unquote a violently mixed bag. The producers has enjoyed a much-improved reputation over time, perhaps in part to Brooks' success as a spoof artist behind Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, and in part because it's possible to appreciate the film from a safe distance when it doesn't seem so controversial. It became a hugely successful Broadway musical, which in turn inspired a hugely unsuccessful film adaptation, and now over 50 years later, we can recognize the producers as very much the product of an unseasoned filmmaker and see how much it often struggles to incorporate the changes in the culture. With its crude depictions of a Swedish sexpot named Ulla and a hippie actor who goes by Lorenzo Saint Dubois, LSD for short, and Zero Mostel's blustery performance as Max Bialystok, a washed-up theatrical producer who raises money from seducing old ladies, seems like a remnant of an even earlier era. Yet when you think about the producers, the first things that come to mind are all of its finest aspects. The brilliant premise of a scheme to intentionally stage the worst, most appalling production in Broadway history, only to have it become a smash. Gene Wilder's breakthrough performance is Leo Bloom, a perpetual nervous breakdown of a human being. And the big musical number, Springtime for Hitler, a parody of a showstopper that actually is a genuine showstopper. I'd argue that it's the things we remember about the producers that have elevated it to the status of comedy classic, eclipsing the things we might rather forget. We'll see if I get any pushback to that argument after the break. What is your name? 
Psychedelically speaking, I am talking about the power. What is your history with the producers, and how does it hold up half a century later? Let me summon a Tasha Robinson-esque sigh of resentment at being put in the position of criticizing a movie so beloved by many. (sighs) (laughs) That's a pretty good Tasha sigh. Mm -hmm. Thank you. This was my first time seeing the original producers. I did see the uh, movie musical uh, adaptation years ago and don't have particularly fond memories of it. Going into this, like, I wanted to like it. I like Mel Brooks. I love Young Frankenstein. I can even, like, get past the stuff in, like, Blazing Saddles that hasn't aged so well. Like, I feel like I am capable of getting past the stuff in this movie that is maybe more of its era. But this movie is just like operating on a comedic register that I could not vibe with. Like from the very first scene, like the credit sequence just felt interminable. Like it's <laughs> <laughs> like it just kept going and going. And like a lot of it is Zero Mostel's performance, which is just like a level of grotesque that was just like very, very off-putting and to me overshadowed the things that you talked about in your keynote as being the things that we remember, like Gene Wilder's performance, which is really good for the most part, but it's it feels so uh, overshadowed by everything else. And springtime for hitler and the whole like i feel like the movie doesn't really become the movie it's meant to be until we actually see springtime for hitler and that's like the last 25 minutes of the movie you Mm -hmm. know it's a pretty short movie but there's a lot a lot of wind up to the the central joke of this stage production and all of that not all of that wind up but the vast majority of that wind up was just like very off-putting to me um i had a i had a really hard time liking this movie sure uh, tasha how about you i had a really easy time liking this movie okay. oh <laughs> uh, it, wow i get to be the tasha yeah, well then maybe i'm being mckeith uh you know i i think everybody's judging this uh, movie a little bit too harshly and uh, i'm just gonna come in with a nice moderate view uh, i agree honestly that uh, a lot of the humor here is grotesque uh that the movie is pretty lumpy that it's got some some real dead spots to it i think of mel brooks as just like a pretty sloppy throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks Mm -hmm. finds a hilarity in crudity kind of director but i saw this film early enough i think that it it slipped in under my cynicism and i've seen it enough times uh that it's just it's got that kind of old friend quality in cinema and uh the the highlights of it are so funny uh but also i think i i may just sympathize a little too much with gene wilder as an anxious like a an inherently Mm -hmm. anxious person who feels like they maybe haven't lived lived enough and who falls easily under the sway of like somebody charismatic promising him something more like the whole seduction (laughs) the whole seduction of his character I just find so so ripe and so appropriate I do think that he and Zero Mostel feel like they're playing in completely different films but Uh, here eras really like eras of acting for sure eras of acting and eras of comedy Mm -hmm. uh but 
that just kind of makes it feel like Zero Mostel is trying to pull Gene Wilder into a different kind of acting, into a different era, into a different phase of humor. Uh, and I, I enjoy the push and pull. There's definitely stuff in this movie that doesn't land with me at all, like the whole I bought myself a toy business. That's that's just, it's pretty rough for, for a modern woman to see. Uh, but the, the comic timing on certain moments, like the moments when every when springtime for Hitler ends and everybody in the theater is appalled except the one person who starts enthusiastically <laughs> applauding and then they all turn on him like there are there are just laugh out loud moments in this movie that that live in a very like protected place in my heart that the bad parts of the movie just can't touch yeah I, I think I'm kind of in between the, the two of you on this one um, because I think what's happening here is that we all are kind of recognizing what works about the film and what doesn't but maybe have a different overall impression of it you know, I mean, because because again, Gene Wilder, Springtime for Hitler, just a basic idea of the movie is really good. I mean, there's a kind of there's there's I think some pretty good, you know, Zero Mostel is miscast, and I think I think that if you get a different actor in that role, the movie the movie might have a better chance of success, um, or that character might pop a little bit more. But it's still you still get some nice farcical business between the two of them. But but there are there are whole scenes and elements of this movie that that really don't work at all. You know, and I and I was reminded of that catching up with it you know again this, this week for the show i mean just like all the stuff with ula is super embarrassing and uh you just get the sense that brooks was trying to be hip or, or at least respond to things that are, were happening in the culture that that he had to kind of come to terms with and he wasn't really able to do it that well um and so you end up with you know the, this libertine sex pot uh, as a secretary and then you end up with you know, LSD is playing uh, Hitler. Though he's, oh, that performance is kind of funny. It's a little bit. Um, it's it's a it's bumpy. It's very crude and broad. And I think you know when you return to those early reviews, what's striking to me is that even at the time, film critics were kind of picking up on the things about the movie that weren't working. You know, it's not like it's not like a, a situation where. Um, you know, everyone loved it. And now we're looking at it and cringing. I mean, people at the time were like, "Oh boy, this is a little bit amateurish." Yeah, the the amateurishness is what really like sticks out to me. And I mean, obviously, it's his, it's his first film, you know, so uh, he gets some leeway there. But like, it, it's kind of funny to me that the sort of the least, not the least, but low down on the list of things that are distasteful about this movie to me is the Hitler <laughs> component. Yeah. Uh, and like, that's actually probably the the strongest part of the of the movie for me is is that big production number. So reading up on this movie, it sounds like Brooks basically pitched the line, the title Springtime for Hitler. Like he threw it out there and it got a laugh and he like built this movie around that one line. And it feels like it's a series of bits kind of set up to to get us to that point, to get us to that big cathartic point, but they don't really like fit together. They don't build in any sort of way. And it's surprising to me when I see this like called a satire, because like I guess you can like kind of squint and call it a show business satire in in the idea that, you know, show business people are so blinkered to, to reality they would make a show about Hitler and not not realize what was offensive about that, or, you know, like actors are so desperate that they would clamor to play Hitler and but I feel like that doesn't that's not actually borne out in any of the comedy of the of the movie it's not like satirical comedy that's happening it's all very slapstick it's all like oh let's watch max leer at elderly old women and bilk them out of their money for 20 interminable minutes <laughs> you know like <laughs> so the it film just, really it, just got off to a, ba- a pretty pretty wrong foot for you the, then uh 
I did not care for the op- that opening, but then it happens later too when he's selling twenty five thousand percent shares of of the production. You know, like it goes back to that again, and we get to watch Zero Mostel manipulating these women, and like it's the same joke done over and over again and it's not funny the first time and it's not funny the 17th time and it's like it seems like a joke that's intended to work in the delivery um as a lot of you know mel brooks jokes are but again mostel is like very miscast here and the performance i just don't think jibes with the what comedy is there well, I mean, it's a it's a crude form of humor. It's to begin with, like the gag there is old ladies have sexuality. That's hilarious. So, mm-hmm. like, even and they're if dumb. It, oh, yeah, sure, they're <laughs> dumb and man- manipulable. <laughs> Although, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I there's a snappiness to the way uh, one of the early ladies like gets one over on him in terms of what she wants. Uh, there's a, a degree of owning her sexuality that I still find pretty charming. But that said, I just don't see this as a satire. I, I, it's a farce. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's part farce and part incompetent con man movie. Uh, it's it's a heist movie that goes wrong. It's it's about a couple of. Uh, it's almost a Coen Brothers movie uh, in just the broadest parameters of a couple of very caricatured, outsized incompetents uh, who are trying to pull off this kind of clever heist and don't do it particularly well and then it all falls apart and then there's gunfire uh i i don't i don't see any point in calling this a satire i don't think it's satirizing anything it really is a brilliant idea for a movie though and i think that carries it a pretty good distance i mean to get to that point of the movie where where he says like you know what did i do right Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that's a great that's a great line, and, and and there's been there's so much that the movie has to to go through to kind of earn it. So I kind of appreciate the architecture of the thing for that reason. And as you're right, it is a farce. I mean, a farce does have that kind of architecture, it does have that intricacy in the way it kind of builds certain elements and then has this payoff in the end. And I think the payoff is really significant and successful. And I and I also appreciate Brooks's just instincts as a comic writer. I mean, to be able to conceive of this in the first place to be able to say say if i make this movie about the staging of something called springtime for hitler and it becomes a hit because people find hitler actually to be funny in a certain context that's a pretty bold idea to pursue and he does it i mean i think i think he proves his thesis on that in that respect and you can see how all of this can go down how you can have this ridiculous script and these ridiculous director and this ridiculous lead actor and then the chemistry of all that and the fact that people do want to have this kind of cathartic laugh at hitler's expense or uh, is um all of that plays is correct and and it could so so not work at all so does the idea i mean this this goes right up to the moment where we constantly have you know a video or a movie or a book or or just a quote going viral and <laughs> many, many thousands of people making their living trying to make things go viral, trying to predict when things will go viral, trying to push things to go viral. But ultimately, it's very hard to predict the public taste. I think you're exactly right that just the idea here is so sharp and and smart and compelling. The idea of two people shopping around for the absolute worst of everybody in in like production that they can find <laughs> yeah. is inherently funny, even if the performances uh, don't quite jive, and even if just the comic timing isn't there in a lot of these uh, interactions that just go on too long. You know, that go on Saturday Night Live like uh, long after you've gotten the joke and you're ready to be done with it. 
Yeah, but a premise isn't a movie. The premise is good, you know, but I, I, the execution. So, Scott, you, you mentioned like the payoff being so worth it. What are you talking about when you say payoff? You mean the, the actual production number that we see or like how the movie actually ends? The production because, number, like, the, the climax of the movie, what we're building to. Yeah, but presumably the climax of the movie is maybe when they try to blow up the theater. Like, like everything that happens after that, just like the story doesn't know where it's going after that. Like, it, or does it know how it's how it's supposed to end? You know, like, again, this just feels like a movie made in service of this one joke of a, of a springtime for Hitler. And some of the some of it works and some of it doesn't, but it doesn't hold together as a movie or a narrative for me in, in any meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, I would say the stuff after... <laughs> I just saw it and you forget that that stuff is there, that they don't just immediately go to jail after... <laughs> Because they would anyway. I mean, they, you know, once 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 the scam is the scam will be revealed if this thing is a hit. So uh, have the additional business of them blowing up the theater is. I mean, though I I, I do again. It's it's you know. I mean, Mel Brooks kind of gets you with the juvenile humor, but I did I I do like the fast wick slow wick bit uh, uh, part of that. That's you know that's good good solid Brooks humor. But and um, I'm just I'm there for the line. I find the defendants incredibly guilty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's good with that stuff. And I mean, I just, yeah, the, the actual number is terrific. It's like really well written and choreographed. And, and they it's really, such an earworm. Jeez, yeah. it just gets in your head. Yeah, it, that's Absolutely. really good. And it becomes plausible and kind of almost like pointed to me that Hitler becomes funny because he's played by a member of the counterculture. That Brooks has a, a good sense of like comic chemistry and what, and when you combine these two opposing forces of a, of a peacenik and of of you know the, the most evil person of the 20th century that you're going to get that there's going to be some kind of comic tension there that's going to result in some laughs and it's hard i think for the film to it's hard i think for the film to convince you that that all of this is going to work that it's all going to play out the way it does and that the thing is going to actually be a hit but that part of it works for me and i mean that that's a lot that's that's all it takes all of the movie to make that happen i mean and, and obviously getting there is an extremely bumpy ride to say the least but it gets there and i think that's the kind of ends up being the reason why people keep coming back to the producers as kind of a comedy classic and why it's on the national registry because i think when it counts the movie scores. I don't think that it's at all implausible that like all of these terrible things add up into an experience people would love. People love bad movies too. Like people pass around mm -hmm. some of the worst terrible movies. Like if you look at something like Troll Two, yeah. which is an inherently terrible movie in a in a baggy, boring, dumb kind of way, but people love to watch it and love to take it apart. I think in the same sort of way, it's not that difficult to believe that people would enjoy uh, a baggy, boring, ridiculous play if it was just so over the top. If the elements of it uh, were so ridiculous and so unlike anything they'd seen before that they felt comfortable laughing at it. Though I think the people in the audience are believing that that is a good play. Not that they're watching something good bad, but that it has been deliberately calculated to delight them and they are delighted by it. Mm. I guess I'm not sure that I buy that. It's just the the disbelief from the guy in the bar that's like, who would have who would have ever thought we could love this this play? Uh, I I think that sort of speaks to a this concept was ridiculous, and yet I find it strangely appealing. I don't know why. I, I it goes against all of my instincts. Uh, to me, it it doesn't sound like he necessarily thinks it was calibrated for him. 
so much as it's taken him by surprise. But I'm not sure that it inherently matters hugely. Like that, the audience, the the specificities of the audience reaction are such a small part of the story uh, that I don't think it really necessarily matters whether they think it's bad or good, bad. The, the point is that they really enjoy it and they're going to tell everybody that they should see it for whatever reason. You know, somebody who makes uh, The Happening, uh, which is one of the greatest terrible films of all time, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of showing it to people, might not care so much uh, if people are loving it in a derisive way, if they all go see it in the theater and pay a full price to see it. Maybe. What do you think? Uh, I was just struck listening to you guys talk that, you know, these audience members did, you know, buy tickets to something called Springtime for Hitler. So they must have had like <laughs> some Mingling. sort of of thought going into yeah. it of, of, of what they were going to see. So now I'm just sort they have of season ticket. They have season ticket. They're season ticket holders. <laughs> see everything at that theater. Look at something Maybe, like yeah. The Room, though. Um, nobody who sees The Room and enjoys seeing The Room is under any belief that it's a, a wonderful movie. But Tommy Wiseau just keeps sort of playing off the the fact that people enjoy it derisively. Uh, you know, he's... Yeah, he's called it... He's retroactively called it a comedy. Yeah. yeah a, you know, I just, a, a brilliant satire, see, I just, I much just like the producers. Yeah, I just... I, I reject the premise. I really do. I, I think that I think that the people in the audience for Springtime for Hitler are appalled by the musical number. And then once Hitler him, himself kind of comes on stage... Then they kind of get it. It's like, oh, wait a minute. All of this is a joke. And this has all been very cleverly calculated to seem Mm -hmm. tasteless, but is in fact doing something original and fun. I mean, I think they genuinely think it's a good play. Why does it matter? Why does it matter in the moment where they're they're laughing hysterically at it? uh, You know, at uh, Lorenzo, like flopping around on stage saying, leave me alone. Why does it matter that much to you whether they're laughing authentically or derisively? It doesn't matter that much. (laughs) I just okay. like to I just like to argue with you, Tasha. It is fun. Uh, we have we have made a twenty year career out of it. <laughs> yes, got us to where we are today. I think we should uh, make a Broadway musical out of it and sell twenty five thousand percent of the the take to somebody. So I wanted to. I mean, we, one one person we we haven't talked about. We talked about. I think we were in agreement that Zero Mostel's performance isn't the best, but Gene Wilder is in this movie. Um, and I think he's fantastic. What did you all think of Gene Wilder in this movie? I think he's somebody in pain and he's wet blanket. and he's hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, just such a great, a great bit of just like well-calculated escalation. I mean, that is, that is your basic escalation humor where you know exactly where something is going to go as it builds uh, like in a programmatic kind of way. And he still makes it funnier like with each new step. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it, he's just so um, sickened by every every moment. He is just he's upset, you know. I mean, he's he's anxious. He thinks they're going to get in trouble, which of course they do. But he's got this idea, and he's he's weak, and he gets this bullied into uh, executing it. And I th- I just think I think that performance is a treat, and and the fact that Wilder does play it at a high pitch like every other performance in the movie. But this is the one this is the one case where I think it really connects i find him funny all the way through yeah Yeah, i mean you're not you're not going to get any argument from from me there you know even though i definitely have issues with you know the way that sort of his character is you know moved throughout the movie and placed in relation to max like i mean when we're talking about mel brooks having a way with just these amazing one-liners and and sort of building 
scenes around that, like, Gene Wilder is the voice you want delivering those, not Zero Mostel, you know, like, and there's a, a reason why they continued to work together and made, in, in my opinion, their Brooks's best film together, uh, tailored much more to that sort of performance than it is here. Gene Wilder was in Spaceballs. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, just uh, yes, Young Frankenstein. I assume you're you're, you're saying yes. there is his best. Yes, I agree. Controversial What's, opinion. I know. I'm just full no. Of it it is thorough. <laughs> that one is is thoroughly great. There's really not not a, not a lot in Young Frankenstein that doesn't work, and there's certainly plenty of uh, lumpiness in the in his other movies. But um, what about? All these other characters in the movie, though. Ula, Franz Liebkind, uh, Roger Ula's Debris. not a character. <laughs> yeah, she's... <laughs> she, she's I was going to say she's a special a concept, effect, but yeah, yeah. she's not even that. She's uh, she's eye candy. She's a visual interest. She's she's a prop. She's a toy. Yeah. <laughs> why, is she, why is she in this movie? Well, she's in this movie for skin. I mean, again, Mel Brooks, a lot of his humor is very broad and very crude. And that's why an awful lot of his other cinema has just never resonated with me at all. And here the joke is uh, she's foreign. So she's dumb. She's blonde. So she's dumb. She's a woman. So she's dumb. Uh, and because of all of these things, she's like she's purchasable. Uh, and it's just kind of gross. But I'm going to give a, a shout out for I, I actually really kind of enjoy the character of uh, Franz Liebkind. Lieb, Me too. Franz yeah. Liebkind. Franz Liebkind. I don't even remember. Liebkind. I think. Franz Liebkind. Uh, Kenneth Mars. So the we're, we're going to talk in the next episode about how this compares to Jojo Rabbit. And in both cases, a lot of the attention has focused on Hitler and whether it's tasteless to portray Hitler, whether it's tasteless to find comedy in Hitler. But I don't feel like this movie finds that much comedy in Hitler qua Hitler. Like, I don't, I don't yeah. think it really makes a joke mm -hmm. out of Hitler. It makes a joke out of this hippie who doesn't understand Hitler, doesn't understand the threat of Hitler, doesn't understand how to play Hitler. But then you have Franz coming along and that's where kind of the, the core of the movie's comedy about Nazis comes in, mm. is in this character who's this very stiff, rigid, over-the-top kind of fascist fanatic <laughs> who the film openly invites you to laugh at. He's over-the-top, uh, he's foolish in his beliefs, he He's completely out of place. He's out of time. He's out of his era. And all of these things are reasons for the film to find him funny and look down on him. I think that the film is looking down on Nazis far more than it's looking down specifically on Hitler. Uh, yeah. And I, I find that kind of a bold choice comedically in sort of the same way that mocking Hitler would be. But it's also broader. It's not just mocking this one short dude with a funny mustache uh, that yells in a language that most of us don't understand. It's mocking like an entire movement. It's mocking an entire belief system. And it's applicable to, to other forms of fascism, including modern day fascism. It's it's all about uh, mock the over the top belief system of the fanatic. And I think Kenneth Mars just like really brings across that character's like bug-eyed brittleness in a way that makes him funnier than most of the the big oversized stereotypes in this film. Yeah, well the other thing though is like I don't think that we hate him as much as we should, which is kind of an interesting choice, right? I mean because he's so screwed up he's such a simpleton uh and uh has obviously suffered some kind of brain da damage <laughs> and he's he's written this play I and mean, he can barely put two words together and he's written this play that is uh obviously pretty bad on the on the page but but there's a weird kind of ends up being a weird 
innocence and sweetness somehow to that character. Well, sweetness is not right, but innocent. Like he's kind of like he's just he's just kind of a dumb guy. I wouldn't say I definitely wouldn't say sweetness or innocence. Uh, there's a harmlessness to him. He's like a child. He's like a child. Uh, I don't know that he's like a child. I think he's like he's a man out of his time and out of his element in a way that makes him harmless. You know, you get ten thousand Nazis together and put them in charge of a country, and terrible things happen. You have one Nazi in you know Brooklyn uh, writing plays, and suddenly it's it's comedic because. He's completely unmanned. He's emasculated. There's no threat that he can bring to anybody. And at the end of the movie, there, there's sort of a, an attempt at a like a little tension coming out of the potential threat from him. But he's even so he's just he's not scary. He's not dangerous. And that's why we can laugh at him. Mel Brooks went in a lot of different directions with Borspelt humor, with with specifically Jewish humor, with specifically drawing on traditional sources of Jewish anxiety, you know, the Nazis, the Inquisition. And in this case, I feel like he's just defanging Nazism by making the point that you take a Nazi out of Germany and you stick him down someplace else where he doesn't have a weapon or anybody to back him up. Or by the end, he has an ineffectual weapon. And like suddenly he's a figure of fun. And you also in this movie completely divorce him from any discussion of the Jewish people. (laughs) You know, like it's very interesting to me that I don't think this character in this movie ever says the word Jew. You know, even though like these are clearly two Jewish characters, you know, is is made by a Jewish filmmaker and it's dealing with Nazis and uh, it has a Nazi character that it portrays as, as you're saying, was sort of childlike, uh, not quite innocence, but guilelessness maybe, you know, mm-hmm. who is working with two Jewish men to make this musical about Hitler. And that's all just like kind of left on the table for you to like think about or not you know like there's no attempt to like make comedy or jokes out of it and it feels honestly a little lame to me like if you're gonna go there go there and it it doesn't go there and i feel like it it makes it feel a little defanged and especially when it comes to that character who who again has some funny lines and is probably one of the better performances in the film but to me also sort of encapsulates a sort of like limpness of of the co- of a lot of the comedy here outside of one-liners and the delivery thereof. This being the 60s, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Mel Brooks had basically been told that he couldn't he couldn't make it openly about Judaism. He couldn't bring it up because of the prejudice that they would face. I don't know if remotely Jewish-themed films were ever stuck under the branch of race picture, but, you know, it would have run up against, uh, like, anti-Semitic uh, messaging, anti-Semitic viewers, anti-Semitic uh, reviews. I-, I think that that might just have been something that he couldn't fully get away with. Like so much of the history of gay people in film, I think this is all coded in a way that, you know, if you're if you're part of this group, you're going to recognize it. You're going to recognize something that's aimed directly at you. And it's lampshaded just enough. So maybe if you're outside, if you're in the out group, you're not going to see that. And therefore, you're not going to say, well, this picture isn't for me. Well, let me offer this idea too, though that if you remind the audience what Hitler actually did 
then it's gonna it's gonna be a big splash of cold water. I mean, in, in a way, like I mean, if you think about even the premise for the play Springtime for Hitler, it's all about Adolf and Eva in uh, what what's the I can't even name the uh, getaway they're having there, but it's obviously a it's them on vacation or something. It's them enjoying the pleasures of, of life. It's, it has nothing to do with. Um, the build-up to the war or any part of the war or certainly not genocide because I think once you actually cross into that uh, terrain, I mean, the film gets edgier and we've seen examples of comedies that are much edgier than this film as far as that's concerned. But I think there's a there's a there's probably a pretty good reason to not bring up a lot of the things that Hitler did. Yeah, that's certainly true. Mm-hmm. Uh, other qu- characters, uh, uh, the concierge. The concierge, birds. Filthy. I, I, that, that character is just, uh, uh, it's a very, like, it's the kind of thing that would show up in a cartoon with Mel Brooks voices. Uh, it's (laughs) just like a, a big over the top, uh, you know, Looney Tunes kind of character. (laughs) I think she's a lot of fun. Just the straight facedness of this person who probably tells literally everybody who she comes across who wants to go by this building or have anything to do with it uh how you used to be able to sit out on the stoop like a person and <laughs> now you can't anymore and what about our director uh, uh um I w- <laughs> mr we- belvedere is it christopher hewitt oh my right? gosh no i didn't i didn't recognize that um uh yeah i was i was talking to our producer uh dan the snake jakes before we recorded um and he was talking about what the how would you describe it dan sort of the approachability of brooks's depiction of the gay broadway type it doesn't feel as malicious as it would appear on its face like even as a kid i remember like being a closeted teen watching it and thinking like I don't know, this, the show busyness of Mel Brooks makes him one of us in a way that, like, doesn't make it feel like he's talking down to anybody. Like, even any sort of representation, no matter how cartoonish in that kind of a comedy, like, seems good. None of that was on mic. It was great. <laughs> it was really good. Yeah. For me, the the issue with that character comes through more in Leo's reaction to him. Like, he, he is, like, so visibly repulsed and, like, upset by this man in a dress and that reaction is played as a joke and again it's a it's a joke of the time but it doesn't feel completely devoid of malice in that moment to me maybe that's just because uh leo is such a an anxious uptight little prude to begin with like you can you can see that as a standard gay panic joke but you can also just see it as like look at this uptight little nerd who can't handle an artist you know who can't handle Mm -hmm. any form of cultural irregularity or like somebody larger than life and like outside his fear like look how sheltered he is i feel like at absolute worst it's like an equal an equal accusation against both of them uh, as opposed to, you know, having your, your handsome two fisted leading man, like look down on the pansy. It's more like, Oh, Oh honey, there's so much weirder than this going on in New York. What's the big deal. It's a guy in a dress. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of with him too, of just uh, um, of him taking in these changes in, in in the culture that or what what am happening around him in in 1967 and having an attitude like look at all this weird stuff <laughs> right like look, look. <laughs> and, and and isn't that kind of funny um um so maybe there and with that perhaps there's an absence of malice right but it's an interesting character and i mean it, it definitely it, it's fascinating to to th- think about this movie as a 
product of its time as a as as a 1967 uh, movie. I think you would you could carbon date it pretty well. Yeah, I I mean we could talk kind of about the bigger picture of Mel Brooks in general, and you know Mel Brooks is one of those guys who these days is perpetually kvetching that you know i couldn't make my movies these days because people are too sensitive like people won't let you be funny anymore people judge you for like making fun of and what he means is for making queer jokes and dumb blonde jokes and black jokes and like basically i mean he was he was a pretty equal opportunity uh mocker of like all races creeds and colors uh, but a lot of his humor is just very, very cheap and yeah. feels very, very, oh, Keith's not here, I get to say it, dated. Uh, and <laughs> like listening time. to him complain uh, these days about how like he can't he can't do these like kind of weak, like, hey, this guy is uh, this guy's fruity. He's wearing a dress. Hey, like that kind of that level of gag where there is no other level. It's just he's he is different from what we expect. Like. I don't mourn the fact that movies aren't being made like this these days anymore. One thing I would say, though, is that with so many of these movies that that people talk about, oh, you can't do this, that you used to be able to do that, you know, it was fine, nobody fussed. I mean, the thing is, people fussed. Oh, yeah. As I mentioned in in the intro, three of the most widely read prominent critics in the country absolutely detested this movie for its crudeness for its broad stereotypes for all those elements and that that and that happens so often when you, when when people talk about oh gosh this oh, this old movie is now canceled because of our, the way we look at things now and it's like <laughs> it's like no like look at the look at the actually the actual reaction to this movie at the time those sentiments were very frequently expressed you know, in print, you know, so it's not, so it's, that hasn't changed that much. And with, and with Mel Brooks, I mean, he's had a, a very up and down career uh, review wise and, and has been picked on for, for the very thing he's talking about. Maybe, maybe he's talking about just getting his films financed, I guess. I don't know, but he's 93 years old. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's, uh, he's had a great career. I think he's pretty what revered, you know, but I guess, you know, you get, you get older and you get cranky. I get that. You get a little cranky, but it's, it's tiresome. I don't know. I'm, I'm with Renata Adler on it being a violently mixed bag. I think yeah. <laughs> I, actually, I, I, I actually read some, some excerpts from, from that review and um, it seemed like her objections had less to do with the quote unquote offensiveness of it and more just sort of the, the amateurish filmmaking and, and the performances, which are where most of my issues lay as well. Yeah, it is pretty amateurish in the sense that it really often feels like let's aim a camera at these guys. And I mean, it's it's got a bit of a feel, especially in some of the Zero Mostel scenes uh, of modern improv comedies mm-hmm. where somebody said, well, these guys are funny. We'll just point a camera at them for, for 20 minutes and edit it down to the best three. And the best three end up feeling like the best 10 because uh-huh. they're not they're not plotted. They're not calculated. They're not paced. They're just people riffing and, and reaching for the best joke that they can find. Like here, I think a lot of the stuff that uh, Genevieve identifies as repetition does sort of feel like almost coming out of like a silent movie uh, ethos of we'll point the camera at you and then I'll just yell like, now woo her. Find it uh, flattering that he's wooing you. We're just going to keep running until that's out. It doesn't feel tightly scripted and tightly paced. It feels like a joke being kind of explored like randomly and wildly on screen sometimes. 
See, I guess I would. Well, I, I, I'm, I, I push back a little bit on, on that because I do think you know, right at the beginning. I mean, it's overlong. There's no question that 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 <laughs> ninety three minutes. It takes, <laughs> not, not the movie. I'm just saying that opening bit. Oh, that, okay. And the, all the oh, stuff, okay. you know, the stuff, the, the the stuff with just Zero Mostel and the old ladies. That's way. That's the really long part. Gene Wilder comes in, and I think that stuff is a little better. But there is a plan there. There are things that need to get accomplished narratively that Brooks is mindful of and I think there is an there is an overall kind of like game plan that he's executing here so it doesn't it is very written in that respect but it's just you know a little loose I mean it's first time filmmaker doesn't know what he's doing um, mm-hmm. and um, he makes some errors a lot of errors <laughs> sure you just you compare like something like that hold me touch me scene with uh, the, <laughs> the Boyd's monologue which is short sweet and to the point and it just it feels like uh, it was written by a different person. Yeah, hold me, touch me. It's good stuff. The name Boys. of her character, by the way. Speaking of <laughs> characters as concepts, hold me, touch me. <laughs> yeah, at least Ula got a name. Presuming we have no more to say about Ula, we can move on to feedback. Uh, so, uh, so we'll... S- Scott and Genevieve move on to feedback. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes or anything else in the world of film. We're always happy to get a good anything else in the world of film letter like this one on trailers. Tasha, want to read it for us? Sure. Adam writes, I recently fell down a Terminator rabbit hole leading up to Dark Fate because apparently I'm Matt Singer's long lost brother. (laughs) After watching T2, I recalled it was a movie of the week at the Dissolve, RIP, and decided to read about a movie that had had a profound impact on my life as a lover of film. Tasha's Dissolve essay about the spoilerific T2 trailer got me thinking about Parasite, which has a trailer that goes to painstaking lengths to not give anything away. So this led me to think about a few questions I'll ask you to help me with. One, who decides what does and doesn't go into a trailer? How much input, if any, do directors have in the way their movie gets marketed? Two, how much of a factor do you think access to trailers has changed the way they are used as a marketing tool? When T2 came out in 1991, the only way to see the trailer was in theaters or on TV. Now we have instant access to any movie trailer in the world whenever we want, and there are instant reaction videos on YouTube to these two-minute sales tools. Three, a follow-up to number two. If it has had an impact, do you think it's made a difference in how we engage with the actual movie upon release? You know, to answer the third question, um, I think it's profoundly... (laughs) impactful in terms of uh, the way a trailer trailers and just marketing materials in general really frame our expectations for what a movie is going to be so i think it's critically important and and i think it can be kind of disastrous sometimes i think last christmas is a pretty good example of that of, of a trailer that had enough information in it to where it's like whoa did we just figure out what this movie is and uh and i think we did uh, as it turns out and uh i don't think that was helpful to the film i mean again i don't have the numbers to back that up you know but uh, my sense is that that was damaging to have to include as much information as that movie did uh to where people could kind of figure out oh this, this has a twist that's sort of based on that song and uh i think i've just seen the whole thing you know, I never uh, saw the trailer for that movie, but I can tell you that it's pretty traditional for rom-com trailers specifically to basically give away the whole movie. And I've always associated that attitude with the idea that rom-coms are very specifically for people who want 
a certain kind of escapism where they know everything that, that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've read interviews with people who say, you know, I only go to movies where I know everything's going to happen. Like I want, I want to be comforted. Yeah. I, I, the yeah. kind of people that, that go to rom-coms that go to very conventional rom-coms uh, and to some degree, even romantic dramas like want a certain form of, of fairly soft, like, uh, comforting, predictable escapism. So I can see where that one bit itself, bit itself in the foot. I can see where that one shot itself in the foot. Uh, just, I like bit itself in the foot. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Fine. I can see where that one bit, it, bit itself in the ass by trying to do what trailers normally do these days, uh, particularly in the genre. And then it was just a bridge too far. I, I do think for me, I, I hate that feeling of uh, where you're you're sitting in the theater waiting for your actual movie to begin and you see a trailer and you say, oh, that was a pretty good film. You know, I've, I've seen every beat in that film. I don't yeah. need to see that film. Yeah. I'm going to try to answer number one, who decides what does and doesn't go into a trailer uh, and how much input do, trailer, do directors have in the way their movies get marketed. Uh, just based on, I'm sure that there are people listening to this uh, who are actually like in the film industry. We've heard from some of them um, who would have a better and clearer perspective on that. And uh, those people should write or call in. But from reading interviews with directors about exactly this over the years, I'm going to say it varies. It Mm -hmm. like so many other things. It varies a lot depending on the size of the movie. You know, the, the movie that costs $200 million, the director's, way less likely to have any say whatsoever in the marketing. And how much of that budget is marketing. Yeah, exactly. Over somebody who's uh, like an an indie director is probably cutting that first trailer themselves. (laughs) So they've got a lot more say in it. But uh, some of the more persnickety directors or some of the more more cloudy directors uh, like James Cameron might actually write into their contracts that they have final approval on trailers. And Cameron, I believe, would want that specifically because how T2 was marketed. So... It ranges very widely, um, but I the norm is is just that no, the studios control that kind of thing. If it's a studio of any size whatsoever, if it's a movie of any size whatsoever, uh, there are professional trailer cutters who only cut trailers, um, and they're making these decisions. The marketing teams are making these decisions, and the directors aren't. Uh, and I have read many interviews with directors who were very upset about the way their films were more marketed. In some cases, A24 is particularly bad about putting out trailers that are designed to get butts in seats, but that are not reflective of what the actual movie is. Mm. And you look at something like uh, They Come at Night or The Witch, you look at the contrast between the trailer and the actual film, and you can see where people are being pulled into the theater under false pretenses and walking out angry and lambasting the movie. And then the directors are unhappy about that. So I, I'm sure there are just as many directors that are thinking, why did you give away the the biggest explosion, the best special effect, the most dramatic moment in the movie? There's certainly uh, a lot of tension, as in so many other industries, between like the the marketers, the salespeople, and and the artists who are making the film. Before we leave this topic, I do want to bring up something that just happened today, yesterday, fairly recently, where um, the second Sonic the Hedgehog trailer was oh, just God. released, <laughs> and I like th- this. This might be unique, in, uh, in, in at least in, in recent film history. I can't think of anything that, that's happened like this where the re- where the fan reaction, not even just fan, just like when people's reaction to a trailer actually 
ended up changing what the movie was, in this case, the character design of Sonic the Hedgehog, because people were so viscerally repulsed by <laughs> what they saw in, in the first trailer. And I, I, I find that really, really remarkable and, and actually kind of a uh, encapsulation of the, the second question here of, about how we engage with trailers has changed since, you know, 1991 and sort of the anticipation culture, whatever you want to call it, that, that we've formed in the last decade, decade or so has resulted in a sort of trailers become a not just a discussion piece, but almost like meme fodder. You know, and and I and I mean that like in the more broad sense of meme, and then specifically the the internet sense. People engage with the trailer as its own thing, and it shapes our feelings about the movie before we see it. And it, so it just it becomes its own discrete object, but also one that keeps building upon itself because you have a teaser trailer, then you have a full trailer, then you have a second trailer, and so the the buildup of the of, to the movie becomes its own cultural object beyond the movie itself. And for me, anyway, like I I try to avoid trailers and teaser trailers as much as possible because that sense of build that, that we get around big movies in particular, by the time the movie comes out, I'm like pre-exhausted by it a lot of the times. And I don't like that feeling. Like I don't like the feeling of going into a movie of like, all right, well, I've been hearing about this for this many months and I've heard this many jokes about the trailer and I know that this moment is coming. And like, that's not how I want to engage with a movie. I understand that maybe some people do, but I try to avoid trailers. I'm in the same boat. I, I try to avoid them. And I almost resent the the degree to which there's an industry now around trailer reactions and trailer frame by frame analysis and trail like trailer, trailer pick aparts. Like I honestly don't understand the mentality of people that are excited to watch somebody else kind of like performatively gop at an ad. Uh, and I, I mostly just resent that whenever I get on YouTube to look for something in, in particular, uh, especially a trailer to embed in a, a piece that I'm putting up professionally, uh, it's hugely outnumbered by the what seems like the exact same freeze frame over and over of uh, an image from that trailer and then whoever's responding to it with their <laughs> mouth open in huge exaggerated performative I can't believe it shock I, I don't understand the people who are like I want to I really want to watch somebody watch an ad yeah but yeah it's a it's a big thing it's it's changed the way people respond to to movies in that people have started resenting movies months before mm -hmm. they can see them. Like there's there's so much anger now that comes out over just, you know, this this trailer came out. Is the the new Star Wars isn't gonna have fill in the blank thing that you love in it at all because this one trailer didn't have that. I, I don't understand that level of knee jerk reaction. And the movie can turn out quite differently from the trailer and defy a lot of the chatter around it. I mean, I think of just the Irishman for one. I mean, like the Irishman wasn't a very good trailer, but it also gave you the impression that it was kind of just like every other Scorsese film or gangster film in terms of its style and pace. And it's not, it is a much, the metabolism of that film is way, way slower and pretty kind of a departure for him and you'd have you wouldn't know that until you actually experience the movie it's frustrating for sure and i find it exhausting as a moviegoer to go to a, to go to a theater and see you know nine trailers before my movie starts i'm like done with the whole movie going experience before it even starts because i'm so so wrung out yeah i remember when we used to like literally sit in the theater 
excited when a trailer came on because it you know it meant we were getting like a little tease of something to come like a little a little bonus uh with our meal like a little snack before our meal but that was when there might be three or four trailers yeah (laughs) when there are nine no i'm right there with you i have i can't tell you how many times i've been in the theater and had the trailer stop and the movie start and i literally cannot remember what i'm there to see (laughs) after like 25 minutes of being pummeled with ads yeah and you're you're and you're just you're you're spent in a way you're not like you're not just like you're not no longer going to a movie fresh you're kind of like wrung out well, we did have another piece of feedback about parasite and related issues, but uh, we've gone on, gone on uh, long enough, uh, so we're going to save it for another episode. So consider this a trailer of things to come. <laughs> kind so of a little teaser. Get excited! Get excited for a parasite-related uh, query. This is my performative gasp face that I cannot <laughs> believe what I'm actually hearing right now. Gasp! <laughs> Click like and subscribe, fam. <laughs> Uh, so we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, remember that we are the authors, and you're the audience, so we outrank you. <laughs>